Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Today, your host, Ben Robinson, sits down with Mark Rubenstein, a former analyst and hedge fund manager who currently authors Net Interest, a weekly insight and analysis newsletter on the world of finance. Each note explores a theme currently trending in the sector, whether it's fintech or economics or investment cycles. And today you are going to hear about a little bit of everything. Mark and Ben discuss the history of equity research and where it's at now, whether current regulation is tilted too far against banks, the twofold challenge facing challenger banks, the past and future of embedded banking, the four key differences between investing in private companies versus public, the potential financial services game changers that could happen this year that people are not talking enough about, and more. In between writing net interest, Mark consults with corporates and investment firms and is an active angel investor in fintech. Enjoy the episode. So, Mark, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Structural Shifts podcast. Um, we're a really, really big fan of Net Interest, and so we're, we feel very, very privileged to have you on the show. If you don't mind, can, can we start by just you briefly introducing yourself and, uh, and giving us a short summary of your career so far, just because I think that will be relevant. I think we can use parts of your career to frame some of this discussion. Sure. Well, no, thanks, Ben. It's great, great to be on. I So I've been in and around financial services for 25 years. I started as an equity research analyst analyzing banks. I spent 12 years doing that. I spent 10 years investing in banks as a partner at a hedge fund exclusively focused on financial services stocks globally, publicly traded, long and short. And then since winding that fund up in 2016, I've looked at financial services out of sheer interest. It's something that it's difficult to shake off. And so that's basically it in a nutshell. Good. Okay. So we're going to pick up on different aspects of that, but I wanted to start with the with the equity research part because one of the one of the newsletters that I most enjoyed, I mean, they're all brilliant, but one of the ones I've most enjoyed just because it had personal resonance for me because I was once an equity researcher was the one where you talked about the history of equity research. And you know, if I, if I were to s- summarize, I mean, if you don't mind, maybe you can just talk a bit about how sell-side equity research works. Because it is kind of a strange model, right? Where yep. you know, you, you know, fund managers have access a lot of times to internal research, but yet they source it from a third party. That third party doesn't charge directly for that research. So it's kind of a strange model. But so if you don't mind just sort of talking about sell-side equity research and also how it's changed, right? Because I think, you know, if I were to put it crudely, it's gone from a sort of really well-paid, really highly solicited job to something which is not not that anymore, right? So I started out as an equity research analyst in the mid-90s, and I was not particularly familiar with it as a professional opportunity. It wasn't something that I, at college, realized that it's something that I wanted to do. I wanted to go to finance, and I participated in a graduate training scheme at a bank, Barclays Bank. It was a subsidiary, the investment banking subsidiary of Barclays at the time. And went through various placements across the bank, not dissimilar to the way graduate training programs work today. I ought to say, though, any listeners that have watched the uh, 
series industry. It was nothing like that. But but I ended up in equity research and, and spent, as I said earlier, tw- 12 years there. Now, the way equity research was conducted then was very, very different from the way it was conducted prior to that and the way it's conducted today. Equity research emerged in the 1960s, 1970s as an add-on to the broker to the core brokerage business that brokers offered their clients. At the time, commissions were very, very heavily regulated, and the only way to compete was through ancillary services. And so brokers offered equity research as one of those ancillary services. They gave it away for free. It was a, a marketing device in order to attract brokerage business. And that was the case when I entered as well. At around the time, so we're going into the 90s, into the late 90s and early 2000s, another side of the investment banking business was booming, and that was M&A and equity underwriting. It's very topical now to go back 20 years and look at the tech boom of 99-2000, given the conditions we're currently seeing today. But the way it worked back then is that companies would want to IPO, and they would choose their investment banks, not dissimilar today. And one of the features that they would look for in selecting their investment bank was the quality of the research that that investment bank produced. And so rather than exclusively being a ancillary business to the trading business, which was the case historically, increasingly research became an ancillary business to banking as well. And as a result of that, equity research attracted a new revenue stream and was therefore able to grow. And in the late 1990s, this business of equity research grew. Costs increased. A superstar culture emerged. The piece that you referenced, I talked in there about a a telco analyst who worked at Smith Barney in New York called Grubman. And he wrote on telco stocks like AT&T. And he was coerced by his boss, Sandy Vile, who was the chief executive of Citigroup, to have another, to rethink his view. It's kind of a euphemism for upgrade it to a buy <laughs> yeah. on one of the stocks under, under, his, under his coverage. 2000 came along, Elliot Spitzer, who was a leading, he was the attorney general in New York, took a view that actually this was, there was a massive conflict of interest at play here. And he tried to dismantle that construct within within equity research. The problem is that the cost base was still there and the cost base didn't have now a revenue stream to attach to. And so you had like an orphan kind of wandering around looking for a kind of a foster family. It was looking for this, this cost base was looking for a new revenue stream. For a short period, it stumbled upon proprietary trading. So period between 2001, probably, and 2006, 2007, investment banks built very large prop trading businesses internally, and equity research was a feeder mechanism for some of the ideas that they would put on. And then the financial crisis happened, and that business disappeared as well. Ultimately, that was also dismantled by regulators through Volcker Amendment to the Dodd-Frank Act. Of 2010. So throughout this entire history, you've had you've had this kind of valuable resource. This guy, you know, just inherently experts looking at companies and issuing investment 
recommendations through the process of research on those companies. Yet in and of itself, it was a business that found it very difficult to reflect a model that able was able to pay it sufficiently. Which brings us to today, and, and you've had another bout of regulation. This was in Europe several, about three three years ago, 2017. You, you had MIFID II, which required a kind of an unbundling going all the way back to the 60s, where this process started, where research was an ancillary to trading. Regulators in Europe came along and said, actually, there's a conflict inherent in this as well. Certainly, in the degree to which it's paid for by institutions, And yet again, the business has gone through a kind of an identity crisis. And that's really where we are today. If if you like, it's been sort of hammered by three waves of regulation, right? So uh, first Elliot Spitzer, then Volcker, now Mifid II. One of the things that's changed, as you said, I think in your newsletter, you talk about how much Grubman made, right? I think it it was like, he made like $50 million or something in, in the space of a few years, right? Which would be unheard of now. So, so, you know, so paypackers have gone down. But the other thing that's notable is the amount or the volume of equity research, right, which has dramatically changed. I mean, you, you talked about going, going to Credit Suisse, I think it was, investor meeting. There were like, you know, hundreds of analysts there. And I remember, you know, going to like SAP investor meetings, there would be, you know, 100 plus analysts in the room. And so clearly we went from a situation where there was, you know, oversupply. Do you think we've now gone, you know, we've tipped to the opposite situation where there's a lot of undersupply, particularly of, of smaller cap stocks? For sure, there is an idea that there's an undersupply research out there, that a lot of there's been certainly a shakeout within the industry. Now, it was arguably overpaid to begin with in, I mean, certainly Grubman, did he merit the millions of dollars that he, he accrued? Probably, probably not, almost certainly not. We've probably, possibly, not from a compensation perspective, but from a resource allocation perspective to the industry, we may have undershot on the other side. And it's not dissimilar. Maybe the analogy here is is, is, is the media, is the press. And actually, there's a lot of overlap, and I draw this out in that piece, between what a very, very good equity analyst does and what an investigative reporter does. Yeah. And there's a public service here. There's a public good here. You know, certainly what the, what the research analysts were doing. So Wirecard, very well-known fraud. Interestingly, the credit, rightly so, for uncovering that fraud has gone to the has gone to a journalist, Dan McCrum at the Financial Times. Yeah. But there are other cases, and certainly there were a couple of analysts. Some of them didn't cover themselves in glory, but there were a couple of analysts who also got that right. And there's a, a kind of a public service to looking independently without being influenced by the companies themselves and the management of those companies, nor by other constituencies for putting out independent research on companies, for doing the job. But but it's interesting you call it a public good because it it suffers from the same shortcomings of a public good, right? In the sense that, you know, it's it's difficult to exclude access to that research once it's in the public domain. And me consuming, it doesn't stop you consuming it. So in many ways, it does have the properties of a public good, which means it suffers from the free rider problem and and in general sort of under provision, right? Absolutely right. And in addition, it's it's difficult before the fact to know if it's any good or not. Yes, <laughs> true. Clearly, you know, the, the analyst report that said that Wirecard was a fraud, after the fact, we know was really very, very valuable research. The report, which would have arrived on the same day on the client's desk, which said, you know, Wirecard is you know, a great company and it's got huge upside. Again, after the fact, we realized it's got you know, a negative value. But, but at the time, the decision rests on the 
recipient to discern between those two. And that's not easy. And it's not easy as well to know ultimately where the value is in this. There's a lot of noise out there. I, w- I want to come back to Wirecard in the context of you know bank regulation and whether it's you know a level playing field. But just on, on this idea of you know perhaps under-provision of research, do you think that creates arbitrage opportunities? So for example, do you think it's now easier to create alpha investing in small cap stocks because there's a sort of higher return on doing that? research yourself, whereas before yeah. that was not the case. Uh, yeah, I, I think, yes. Um, you know, we talk, there's some great... So, actually, just re- recently, the, the, there's two companies called Signal. Elon Musk tweeted quite recently that one should be buying Signal. He was a big proponent of Signal. Uh, readers picked up the wrong Signal. Actually, early on in the pandemic, the same thing happened with Zoom. There were two, yes, two Zoom. Yeah, yeah two, two companies. The point here is... You know the markets just aren't efficient. The markets are not efficient, uh, and and Signal and Zoom, you know, are, are great recent examples of that. And to the extent that they're not efficient, research does have value, and those inefficiencies typically emerge the lower down the market cap, cap curve one goes. There's a quite high proportion. I mean, certainly relative to in the past of small caps that no longer have any sell side equity. Coverage, right? Yeah, that, that is right. And it's not great either. Now, the flip side is that some of it has shifted over to the to, to, the, to the buy side themselves. Yes. So, so the investment community, that was a trend that was already in place from the institutional perspective. But what we're now seeing, because of the ability to share ideas more freely through the internet and platforms like Twitter and also dedicated platforms like SumZero, and the ability for for individual investors or, or, or smaller emerging institutional investors to get access to infrastructure. Maybe they can't afford Bloomberg at $24,000 a year, but they can afford other apps and other facilities that more research is being, is being generated. And yeah, and, and, and Twitter and, you know, and actually, you know, this brings us back to the model because it's quite interesting. So the old research model was We'll give it away to everyone for free and we'll attract some revenue dollars through trading commissions. More recently, post MIFID 2, that has translated into we will just service, say, the top 100 customers yep. who are prepared to pay for it. There's a trade off now between generating thousands of dollars from 100 customers or via the internet, particularly where the market might be individual investors who. And whether this is cyclical or secular or not at this stage, I don't know. But certainly retail engagement in the market is increasing. They're not going to pay thousands of dollars for institutional research. But the quality of what's available on the internet is very, very high. Maybe they'll pay $20, $30 a month and tens or hundreds of thousands of those. You know, there's a good newsletter writer called... I mean, there's a number of good newsletter writers out there, but 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 a number of them... They, they, they offer, in my view, institutional-grade research, particularly in the technology space, and they charge $10, $20 a month for it. But they have hundreds of thousands, and actually it would be interesting to see their P&L against that of a traditional equity sell-side research business, given lower costs and broader reach. Because I was, I was actually going to highlight this as, as a second arbitrage opportunity, whether it's called that or not, right? Which is one might be there's more potential to make money from small caps than there was in the past. But the other one is, I think, you know, I don't want to suggest that this is the model for net interest, but a bit where, you know, you can almost crowdsource as almost as good or maybe even better in some cases research from, from the internet, as you put it, right? Which is, you know, the sort of the bottom up 
you know, kind of organic production of research to fill the gap, right? Because um, I agree, and you see the same thing in also in uh, investigative journalism and and other content areas, right? Which is, you know, your choices are either to pay a subscription for the FT or to subscribe newsletters, right? Because these things are sort of mushrooming. And, you know, I mean, that's that's another phenomenon in, in a way that you're embodying, right? Which is, you you know, you publish your, your newsletter on Substack and in, in some ways you're kind of contributing to this gap that's being left as equity researchers become or, or, or is provided to, to to a lesser extent than it was in the past yeah i think that's right and, and you know and it comes from just this i, mean, I, I don't like the word democratization that people use but it's but it's it, it certainly plays into that theme you know clearly the advantage that and i remember when i was an equity research analyst it was at bzw which you mentioned which is it was a subsidiary of barclays and i was looking at swedish banks in 1996 they'd kind of emerged from a crisis They'd been re- reprivatized. They'd been re-IPO'd. And there was a, a kind of a recovery theme in, in a way. And, and I stumbled upon, it's kind of the early days of I mean, the internet. I mean, we had access to the internet, but it wasn't, but you know, what was on there was difficult to find. There was no search. It's kind of the days before Google. And I kind of stumbled across a document from the, from the Central Bank of Sweden, the Riksbank, which provided very interesting data on kind of banking volumes it was faxed to me by somebody in Sweden. I, I literally, I was working at home. It was a Saturday. I was working at home. I, you know, I couldn't read it because it was in Swedish. <laughs> you know, the, there was no Google Translate. Well, did, did, did exist. Yeah. No, I, ra- I ran around to my local bookstore, bought a Swedish English dictionary, translated this thing, put out put out a piece of research, you know, on this finding that actually loan growth in Sweden based on this data was 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 greater than anybody anticipated and it was a hit you know it was i'd stumbled across something but it was purely informational and clearly the friction to getting that information now is just non-existent everybody everybody has all of the information all of the time hence there's norms race in place to get new sources of information kind of alternative data sets but what's happening now so but you know that's all done we know that's kind of what's happening now is the same thing's happening to Analysis, you know, now people, be, again, through the ability to meet in the market square via whether it's Twitter or any other kind of platform, there might be a great analyst who's based in, I mean, I know there's a great, there's a great equity research analyst who I rate called Scuttle Blurb. He's based in Portland, Oregon, far from Wall Street. And there are people just all over the world in, 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 in India and in, in, in small towns in England, all over the world, all analyze it so they've, they've got the base level of information and the degree of analysis they're doing now is 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 institutional grade and it's accessible it was just before the financial crisis that you switched from being a self-side analyst to working for a hedge fund if i'm if i'm right presumably that was a great time to have the ability to go short on banks and i just wondered you know when you were living through it how evident was it kind of in advance of the crisis that it was coming, you know, could you presage that, you know, we were going to have this big crash or, or was it really, did it, was it was as sort of sudden as un, un, unexpected to you as it was for the people that weren't as closely following that? Like yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's, it would be easy for me to say, yes, <laughs> yeah. I would say the way I would finesse it is yes, we saw ele- we saw elements of it, but it's important to remember somebody once said causes Causes run in packs. There's never a single. There's never a single cause. And I think you know. I, I think I think it's lazy analysis, and and I see it, and it, and often it's politically motivated. 
for people to say the financial crisis was caused by X. And X could be, typically it correlates with one's political inclination. X could be, you know, greedy bankers. Or X could be people borrowing too much. Or X could be sloppy regulation. Or or, or X X could be too much leverage at the banks. Or whatever it might be. There's a whole range of reasons. And, and, And ultimately, it was the confluence of lots of those things that happened to create the crisis. Although I, I, you know, I do look, you know, although I, we, me and my colleagues identified some strands of it to have predicted the degree to which it all coalesced, you know, at its nadir and kind of, you know, let's say October, 2008, I, I think, I think that was, I think that was difficult. That was difficult to predict. And there's a reflexivity in that. And, you know, but that's an evidence, there's a complex, there's a reflexivity to it. It happened. I remember watching, I mean, vividly, I remember vividly watching the debate in Washington around whether top around, around passing the top about passing the top bill it was controversial and i remember specifically and it went down and but because it went down the market went down and so reflexivity because the market went down then when it came back for another reading because the market had gone down incentives had shifted and yeah, so reflexivity yeah. predicting kind of reflexivity in in advance is difficult. Having said that, there were things we saw. So back in, you know, we were short, I mean, b- back in 2006, we were short some subprime companies. In fact, I went back through my, I'm not a Facebook user anymore, but I, I went, but when I cancelled Facebook, I downloaded all of my posts. And there was one post in July of 2007 where I'd, I'd, I'd cautioned about an impending financial crisis. We, we were we were short Fannie and Freddie and all the rest of it. And the difficult thing, the difficult, just, an observation about investing broadly, and you know, we'll go into more detail on the crisis. But investing broadly, what's difficult is changing. It's just it, it's incredibly difficult for any investor to change to change their mind. And I think there were a number who were who were negative. A lot stayed negative beyond March two thousand and nine. But the fascinating thing to, to me is those that they were they were kind of negative, and then they switched positive. And just taking a step back away from financial services, but generally, investors' ability—the very, very best investors—their ability to adapt to changing conditions like that continually, very, very difficult. And and I think you know history is littered with investors who have got two or three calls right, but to be able to to retain an element of persistence through those changing dynamics, very, very difficult. Yeah, I, I think it could be a rabbit hole. But I would argue almost like that the, the group potentially the greatest of all investors, Warren Buffett, has not been able to adapt his strategy to, to some extent to the digital age, right? Because he's still buying sort of, you know, asset-heavy companies with a lot of sort of supply-side economies of scale and and so on, right? So I think it even happens to the best, which is, you know, when there's a paradigm shift. Yeah. True. And to, your, to our conversation earlier about small cap, large cap, I mean, certainly his performance hasn't been as good in the recent past compared to prior periods in his in his history. Yeah. He's got longevity. Very difficult to compare him to any other investor because I'm not sure there's any track record out there that's as long as his. But he made the point recently that, well, he actually made it in 99. He made a point, there's a great quote in 99 where he, he was talking about if he had a million dollars to invest, you know, he'd crush, he'd crush yeah. the market because of his ability to access small cap. 
but it could be a reflection on your point as well. It, it might be both because because you actually wrote another great newsletter, right? About, about the you know the curse of of managing too much money, in yeah. way, right? Which is it becomes harder and harder to achieve a return on you know, much bigger sums. Yeah, exactly. And that's another curse that I, I call it Zuckerman's curse. Gregory Zuckerman, who's a great writer, has written yeah. a number of books about. He's written two in particular about about hedge fund managers, and they've been published. You know, clearly. He's been attracted to them because they've been on the because that because of their profile and their profile is a function of their performance and therefore there's a, a direct line between them showing good performance and him writing a book. Yeah, <laughs> actually, no. It's more nuanced than that. It's not just them having good performance; it's them having good performance and being big enough for him to notice. One of my favourite investors out there is Hayden Capital, a guy called Fred Liu, based in New York. He was up two hundred and twenty-two percent last year, but he's small. Nobody knows he's not. Nobody, yeah. nobody, nobody knows of him. And the curse is that over a certain size, it's difficult to sustain that performance on an ongoing basis. Actually, it's worse than that because typically, the money. After a good year, the money then comes in, and if there's, I'm not saying investing is mean, mean reverting, but certainly there's an element of it. Certainly, it's difficult to sustain very, very good performance across across multiple time periods. Do you, do you know um, what Zuckerman's next book is about? Just so we know in advance and <laughs> to get out. It's a good question. I mean, the other one was on frackers. I feel bad because they're great. I've read them all. I mean, they're great books. Yeah, but, yeah. No, it's the, uh, the the writing on the wall, the curse of Zuckerberg. I'm, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you another, a bit like the financial crisis question. I'm going to ask you another question, which is going to be, I think, impossible for you to answer, you know, in retrospect without any sort of cognitive biases and so on. But you, you wrote another newsletter which I really, really um, liked, which was called "The End of Banking." How obvious was it now, in retrospect, that post financial crisis, financial services was just not going to be the same? Again, right? Because you know, profitability is not the same. It doesn't represent anywhere near the same size of, you know, as a composition of the indexes in which it sits. And so it just seems like the financial crisis in a way was like, you know, the peak. Of, of, and it may, you know, maybe it may be, as you say, this may be cyclical. It may be that it, in, in the future it's, it it's becomes as big as it was and as profitable as it was. But certainly it seems much more structural, right? For the reasons that I think we, we can talk about now. But d- was it, was it, you know, when did it, did it become evident to you that? the sector becomes sort of structurally less sexy in a way. It's, it, I'll be honest with you, it took me a long time. It, it, right. it, my, my mental model, I mentioned Swedish banks earlier, my mental model was that banks, uh, and this had been true historically, and in my working memory through the Swedish banks, they went through a period of crisis, they'd be recapitalized, they'd come back to the market, Typically, they'd be a lot more conservative, and so underwriting would be tighter. They would then generate huge amounts of capital, and the, and the, and they'd recover. That 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 there was a cyclicality yeah. inherent in the industry. They would they would crash. They'd be recapitalized, and they'd recover. And that was my mental model. I remember at the time being told we we talked about the tech boom from 20 years ago, 1999-2000. We've talked about that already. I remember in 2010, 2011. A strategist who'd experienced the tech boom. I mean, I experienced the tech boom as well, but I wasn't I wasn't directly involved in it. I remember a, a strategist at a bank saying to me, he said, it takes a whole generation, it takes a generation. We have to cycle, the market has to cycle through a generation of investors to forget what happened, to forget the 
scars of the previous crisis for any kind of return to normality. And I, I didn't believe it. I said, no, you know, and so I was sanguine about the extent to which the market recovered. I underestimated a number of things. I underestimated, one, how low interest rates would stay for how long. Two, just the, you know, and I often think actually for the investment banks, worse than 2000, and for them and their long-term from a strategic perspective, worse than the experience they suffered in 2007, 2008, how well they performed in 2009 hurt them longer term from a strategic perspective more because the backlash was then huge. It was kind of the the political, I mean, the disgust that they made so much money in 2009 hurt them and that that increased the scope of regulation, which neutered them for many, many years after that. So I underestimated regulation. And then, I mean, we can talk about disruption and, and fin- it's difficult. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure that was, that was, I'm not sure I underestimated that, but that was clearly another, another factor. Another yeah, factor. yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe let's unpack those things, right? Because I think interest rates, I think, you know, we, we won't know for a long time whether this is a, stru- a structural or a cyclical factor, but it seems like the re-regulation of, the banking is a much more structural thing, as is there's one other thing, which I don't know if it's permanent or not, but you talk about it as governments inserting themselves into the cap table of banks, right? But this idea that they become almost like an arm of, of government in some ways, right? Because, because, you know, particularly during the COVID crisis, you know, they were used to direct funding and, and also, you know, they, they just don't have the same control they used to have over, over capital allocation. So, uh, again, I don't know if that's a structural or, or cyclical or, or temporary phenomenon, but it's certainly one of the things that's been sort of weighing on bank valuations. But the re-regulation part, I think, is is probably much more structural. And the question I wanted to ask you about that is, you know, part of the – I think we could probably talk about regulation in different buckets, right? So part was about making banks safer, part was about sort of introducing more transparency. But the part that I think is now looking a bit kind of controversial in a way, right, is – all the regulation that's aimed at introducing more competition to banks, you know, so at PSD2, for example, it almost seems like that was mistimed because I think what the regulators perhaps hadn't appreciated because of the lag was that there's just been so much new competition from non-banking players, right? So I wonder almost whether, in hindsight, whether regulators would have still introduced some of the regulation they've done to, to introduce more competition into banking because it seems like almost now not necessary. And in, in potentially even unfair, you know, you, in your last newsletter, you talked about that letter from uh, Anna Botin to, to the FT. And it's, you know, some of that I thought was, was, was quite justified, some of that sort of criticism of recent regulation and the, and the absence of a playing field, level playing field. So it's a long question, but do you think almost like some of that, you know, some of the regulation now is tilted almost too far to get, you know, against the banks? Yeah, I, I, think it's, it's, I think it's a truism that regulators typically fight the last battle. And not just regulators. I think it's a response to, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, my mental model for the period after the financial crisis was dictated by the last battle, which was Swedish banking crisis of mid-1990s. So, and regulators are the same. So, they are very, very focused on fighting the last battle. And you know, e- equally, I think it was a truism that whatever the cause of the next financial crisis, it was never going to be the same ingredients to the one we suffered in 2007, 2008, to 2009. By the same token, it's not it's not clear that we're not talking about a financial crisis here. We're talking about just we're yeah. talking about you know as, as you as you put it a, 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 play, a playing field. 
but certainly the combination of low interest rates and a playing field that's not level was very, very negative for the banks. And there was a degree to which maybe regulators understood that, maybe they didn't. If they understood it, maybe there was certainly there was no political motivation to circumvent it because there was this culture about wanting to punish the banks. But you're right, you know, this point about they insert themselves, it's the the role of any chief executive of any company is pretty much exclusively as capital allocation. And from an investor's perspective, looking at banks, if 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 they don't have the capability to manage their own capital allocation because because regulators can come in I listened to a a debate recently between some some not so much investors they were sell side analysts and market participants and representatives from the Bank of England and the view of the Bank of England and I don't think they're unique here I think it's a view of many regulators that prevented their banks from paying out capital in March of 2020 was, well, it's only temporary. But we've spoken about scores and the degree to which scores can be left. And and, and and from now on, any investor that is investing in a bank understands that at any point, particularly given the capital framework that was put in place to protect banks from unknown. I mean, clearly a, pan- a pandemic was an unknown, but that's what capital is there for. It's there, for, it's there to protect against unknowns. It's not to protect against unknowns except for a pandemic or unknowns except it's all unknowns, whatever they might be. And so even with that in place, for them to come in and say, actually, we're going to take charge here of capital allocation, that sends out a very negative signal. And Yeah, and plus, and plus they'd already introduced regulation to ensure that there were more buffers, you know, that you had to sort of, you had to protect against losses earlier, right, in the cycle. And so exactly. to some extent... Yeah, it was, you know, it was almost like you know a, a double hit on their ability to allocate capital, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so we'll see. So, we'll 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 see the extent to which there's still a view out there that the worst hasn't been. We haven't seen. There's a view out there that we haven't seen the worst. That maybe over 2021, yeah. when things begin to recover, uh, small businesses will see unemployment. There's a view. There's a view out there, but uh, certainly and and. And the other thing is, again, it comes back to this point of reflexivity. Back in March, yeah. the regulators didn't anticipate to be somewhat fair to them, the degree to which monetary policy would come in and fiscal policy would, would come in. But yet, but once they had come in, the, there was a degree of caution that was maybe unwarranted. And from the perspective, and again, they might argue, who cares? We're hurting some bank investors here, but who cares? But But ultimately, from the perspective of a bank investor there's some long-term issues here and 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 actually banking you know the 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 ultimate backstop and it worked in 2007 2008 actually 2009 is that is that investors come back investors the private sector bails out the banks the private sector puts more money in because it knows that actually at this point in time we can draw a line and that future returns for that bank look look positive it would have been it would have been difficult actually for that to have taken place in 2020 given what has gone on had gone on before it and given the things we've discussed about regulatory intervention i think it would have been very difficult for banks to have raised capital in the private markets and that would have been very negative from an do you think that maybe things might change from here in the sense that this is where i wanted to bring in uh, wirecard in the sense that because you know the banks are so heavily regulated now and so closely scrutinized that 
a lot of the scandals and fraud and uh, improprieties is, is happening outside of the banking sector in in, in tech companies or shadow banking uh, or areas of shadow banking. And do you think at some point the the regulator is now going to you know to change the direction of or or, or at least move its focus to, to all of those companies that are doing banking but aren't banks? You know, whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know. And actually, shadow banking, I mean, don't forget, even in the last crisis, one thing, I mean, I, I said earlier, I'm going to contradict myself now talking about fighting the last battle, but the, 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 some of the ingredients of that, of that last battle were it were in the non-banking sector, were in the shadow bank. True, yeah. Subprime companies weren't regulated. Uh, and in the US, different regulatory requirements for thrifts, such as Washington Mutual, who played a game of regulatory arbitrage, choosing to be regulated by one regulator rather than a broad financial services regulator. The, 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 the investment banks weren't regulated as banks. Lehman Brothers was regulated separately from, and, and, and as a result of the crisis, Goldman and Morgan Stanley became bank holding companies and became regulated as banks. So shadow banks and, and, and this kind of regulatory arbitrage was going on anyway. But you're right, it's going on now. And, and, and these payments companies, to all intents and purposes, some of what a payments company does is not dissimilar to what a bank does. And we and we saw that with Wirecard actually. And 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 hence, you know, you mentioned Anna Baton's FT op-ed piece. Uh, some of the consternation of bankers right now is that tech companies are getting away with stuff that they just wouldn't be able to get away with. In, in every sense, right? In the sense that they don't have the same scrutiny, but they also, you know, it's, it, they don't even have the same, they don't have the, the, the same, to set aside the same level of capital, for example, to do the same business, right? So it's, it's not just more scrutiny. It's also just, it's it's not uh, just a supervisory level playing field. It's actually an operating level play field as, as well, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the issue, and, and the issue here, is not about it's not about financial stability per se. It's about the specific issue that Santander has, and Unicredit has mentioned it, and Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan has hinted at it as well. is about is about data, and one of the you know one could have made an argument back in. Ten years ago, that the that the that the entities with the most data that banks have got more data, more valuable data. And if we rank, yeah. if we rank, so you know, I guess Amazon has got shopping data, uh, Google has got search data, Facebook has got social data, and some overlap between them. Banks have got financial data, and what data is more valuable than financial data? And yet they've been restricted, rightly, from their ability to monetize that. And I think the issue now is we're seeing this convergence of data, hence this degree of consternation about the degree to which the playing field is not level. And, and the PSC2 bit as well, like it, it from, it's, it's not just that they have to share data if the customer says that's okay, it's that they're sharing data with customers that already have in some ways an advantage because they're already sort of more embedded in our in our lives, right? So it's, you know, as, as you've made the point many times in your newsletters, if you control distribution in the digital age, you know, you're in a much better uh, position to to create network effects and, you know, to re- reduce the cost of customer acquisition and so on than if you're, a, you know, balance sheet provider. And so it's almost like it, it's a double whammy of sort of thinking you need to introduce more competition and forcing banks to share a really valuable asset with those people that are already better positioned to capitalize on on data anyway and distribution. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. And some banks, and banks, you know, certainly some of the startup banks, some of the challenger banks are, 
trying to exploit that idea about distribution but they but they don't have they don't have the distribution right now that the big bank yeah. and and that's obviously an issue for them and this, so I'm re- really pleased you mentioned challenger banks because one of the things I wanted to ask is you know, you know how people are talking about this covid economy is, is like it's k-shaped right you know I, you know the idea that so everything digital is booming and everything analog is you know is 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 suffering or faring really badly and to some extent you've seen that in in the world of financial services and fintech, you know, you talked about Square, which we can come back to in a second, as as a company that's really shot up and you know really found more customers and, and been able to sort of benefit from the crisis. But challenger banks, notably, haven't. What what do you put what do you put that down to? Well, some of them have actually. So you're right. I did write. So some of them have. So, so Chime in the US has done very yeah. well through through this period, but others 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 haven't. I think. That one of the, I think the biggest challenge, singularly, that these challenger banks face is their ability to acquire customers cheaply, and historically, and, and the right and the right customers. There's some question mark as to as to as to the quality of Monzo's customers, let's say, and 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 actually, to be fair to the company, the company has provided disclosure in the past as to what the unit economics are on a customer that pays its salary account into its Monzo account as distinct from a regular customer that maybe saw their friend has got Monzo downloaded the app and maybe actually isn't even a active active user I guess the problem with banking here is that the or a problem which maybe is why it's different from other digital industries is that there's a life cycle perspective whereby the customer becomes more profitable, when he's a little bit older, and yet adoption, digital adoption tends to take place when they're when they're younger. So the challenge for the challenger banks is twofold. One, it's as I've mentioned, it's the ability to acquire customers cheaply. Yeah. The second link to the ability to capture revenue from them is: can they turn a millennial into? Can they extract profitability? So, which is equivalent to what a, a typical bank customer profitability might be, uh, or do they have to wait until that customer gets a bit older and kind of hits that profitability level, which would be typical in a kind of life in a, in a life cycle process? Talking about customer acquisition costs, because I agree with you, that's you know the unit economics are really hard to manage if you've paid loads and loads of, mon- of money to acquire the customer. It costs a lot to to acquire the customer, and then the sort of lifetime value is somewhat held up, right? In, in my view, at least, right. Which is, you know, the ability to sort of upsell and cross sell customers is is hard in banking because we don't actually spend very much time on the banking apps. And so, I just so I sort of had, you know, we, we sort of have this thesis that it's going to become much easier to embed banking in other channels than it is to sort of build a really really profitable banking business going forward because, you know, if you consider you know social channels for example or. or e-commerce channels we spend a lot of time in those you know, on those channels and if you can introduce banking into the you know at the point of sale or if you can introduce banking in a social way then you know first of all you have a low or even negative cost of customer, customer acquisition but then you also have that real ability to generate very high lifetime value because you have the customer spending a lot of time on the app and therefore you have you know a lot of um, surface area in which to upsell and cross sell where do you stand on that whole embedded banking discussion yeah i think that's right i think i think i think that is right i think think one of the reasons why payments has been the most successful the most successfully penetrated area within financial services by 
startups and digital propositions is 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 exactly is exactly this point that the frequency of payments is is just is infinitely higher than the frequency of mortgage application so 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 that that is right and and then we think and i've thought about this in the context of insurance as well as 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 banking but in in both cases you know nobody wants no i mean it's a utility nobody wants nobody wants a mortgage there's no tangible benefit there's no tangible value in the mortgage itself. Nobody wants a mortgage. They want it. They want a. They want a home, and 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 and, and secondary to that is the financing of it. Uh, and equally, nobody wants a. Nobody wants a checking account. They, they want a. They want to, ultimately it is payments mechanism. They want some facility to. It serves multiple jobs. One is to facilitate payments. One is as a store of liquidity. One is maybe as a conduit into. Say the savings, long term, longer term savings, but the tangible value of the thing itself is low, and and as you say, therefore the appeal of embedded finance is very very high. Now there are issues around regulation and the ability to, from a business perspective, the ability to scale, but from a consumer perspective, it makes it makes perfect sense. And do you think this is therefore the biggest threat to banks over the long term, which is? You know, it becomes easy. It becomes easier to embed finance in channels that have engagement than trying to create engagement in banking channels. And therefore, as, you, as you've talked about, the sort of split between what we might call distribution of financial services and the, I guess we could call it like the manufacturing of financial services, becomes even more pronounced. And therefore, you know, profits go one way, and and the other becomes more and more of a utility over time. Yeah, it depends where. So one of the other features of one of the other features of banking is that it's each market is distinct because because we're going back there's a path dependence because we're going back hundreds and hundreds of years banking has evolved very very differently across different markets you know a mortgage in switzerland is very very different from a mortgage in the uk for example so russia is an interesting case study and this spurbank biggest bank in russia has brand value that banks across countries in europe and in the us would envy they have phenomenal brand value. Has launched a marketplace where everything we were discussing earlier. It knows it's got the data and it's got the brand value. So it's got the data and the brand value. So it's offering a marketplace. So rather than so it's offering a marketplace to its customers via its app. So that's one approach. Uh, and everything we're nervous about big tech companies in the US and countries in Western Europe. Uh, everything we're nervous about about them achieving. Spurbank itself might be achieving that and is in competition to the tech companies in Russia because it's going it's it's for, it's for, it's forging its own path there so that that's one market it's a bit different but but you ride elsewhere you know I often think about that I've written this in one of the newsletters that Goldman Sachs plus Apple is probably the biggest competitor that combination of Goldman Sachs's back office banking as a service infrastructure with Apple's consumer-facing distribution and, and and brand value. That combination of both of those could be a bigger competitor to J.P. Morgan than Chime yeah. or any kind of startup fintech challenger bank. There's a tendency to sort of conflate retail banking with banking in general, right? Because you, you know trust is so important, and as, as you say, right, once we move into wealth management, then you just don't see 
you know, the same level of tech or fintech disruption. Once you move into wholesale banking, you know, you don't see the same level of, of tech and fintech disruption. So I wonder, you know, are we guilty sometimes of talking about retail banking as if it's all banking? And then the second point would be, because you're such a sort of student of financial services, I wonder, do we also fall in the trap of sort of thinking that these things, which look so disruptive, have actually played out many times before in sort of, you know, different guises, right? Because I was reading your thing about Visa before, yeah, and it's almost in a way, you know, was, was Visa not embedded banking in a way, you know? So I wonder, do we, are we also so guilty of sort of, you know, thinking these are bigger trends than they really are, and they're, they're actually sort of, they, they come across and they, they happen quite regularly over the course of history, right, in cycles? Yeah, it's such a good point. It's such a good point. I think I, 100% I agree with that. I think there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, a lot of what we're seeing now, we've seen before in various guises. So, so you're right. So I, I did a deep dive on Visa recently. It's a fascinating story. Uh, the founder of Visa, Hoc, was so far ahead of his time in thinking about payments and the way in which payments simply reflect, I mean, just to give some context, we're talking about the 1960s where you know computers were the size of buildings uh, and and he was thinking about payments and, and most of the payments at the time was done on paper that was shuttled between between banks and he foresaw this system whereby payments were he didn't use the phrase ones and zeros but but they were but they were he talked about alphanumeric data that payments were simply alphanumeric data. He's written about all of this. He wrote, so Hawk, founder of Visa, he's 92 years old today. He founded Visa in the late 60s, let's call it 1970. He was CEO until 1984. And he wrote a book in 99 that was reissued in 2005. And he talks about, the need, he questions the need for banks. He says, if it's just alphanumeric data, if it's just alphanumeric data, why, why, do, we, why, why do we need banks? And the, and the payments... And he, at the time, knew nothing about crypto, knew nothing about digital currencies. But presently, he talks about a global currency. He talks about payments just taking place directly between consumer and merchant. Much of the functionality that Bitcoin potentially offers, or crypto more broadly, potentially, potentially offers today. And he was talking about this in the 60s and 70s. Just to come back to your question, similarly, equally, he was so he allowed J.C. Penney, which went bankrupt last year. It kind of came out. It went through a bankruptcy process in 2020. It's come through that now. But but back in 1979, it was one of the three biggest retail merchants in the United States. It was so big, he said, "Well, let's bring it straight into the let's let's let's." Let's introduce embedded finance. Let's bring it straight into the Visa ecosystem. And, but even before that, interestingly, it was companies like JCPenney that actually invented the credit card in the way now that, so, so now we think about kind of Shopify and everything that Shopify is doing with Stripe to embed finance at the point of sale in merchants. This was the big merchants. I, I guess what's changed is that you don't have to be big anymore, that because of these providers, because the cost of everything has gone down, the cost of storage, the cost of underwriting, the cost of, the cost of everything has gone down, it's become more accessible for smaller companies to offer these things that the big companies have been offering since the 1950s, 1960s. So yes, there's nothing new under the sun. We can do, I mean, same with challenger banks, egg, we've spoken about 2000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Egg was a, a challenger bank that emerged in the UK with a not dissimilar model to the model of many challenger banks today, 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago. A lot of these models have appeared before and we can earn. And one of the things that I try and do in that interest is look back through history, as you say, as a student of financial services to learn from them and, and apply them to the situations we find ourselves in today. Having said that there is nothing new under the sun, I just want to get you on digital currencies because that actually does seem like something that is, which is more transformational. If you don't mind, what, can you briefly just describe what a digital currency is? Because you know, one of the, one of the things that, you know, when we talk about digital currencies, people get, I suppose, a bit confused about is, you know, if I were to pay you some money now and I would just transfer it to you, that's, that's in a way digital money. So what's, what's the difference between just, you know, an electronic transfer of, of, of sterling versus digital sterling? So I think the difference is there's three types of digital, the three types of digital money broadly. One is crypto. So it's basically, it's, it's got its own infrastructure and it's got its own coin. So like, like Bitcoin. Two is we can talk about stable coins, which are, it's got its own infrastructure. So Facebook looks like it will launch any week now, actually, its own stable coin. It's got its own infrastructure. But it's stable in the sense that it's not its own coin. It's it's it is it's a US dollar or, or or some other some other currency. And then the third type is a central bank digital currency, which is which is the central bank maintains the infrastructure. It is also a existing currency. Call it call it call it the US dollar. It's got those three types. And and I think what's and and the difference and the difference is so if we're talking about so if we're talking about I think your question referred to central bank digital currency. The difference is, you know, if I give you a, if I give you a, a, you know, a twenty, a twenty pound, a twenty pound note, it will have a serial number on it. So wh- when I'm talking about a digital currency, wh- but when I'm, but I'm paying, but when I'm paying you online, it won't have that serial number on it. So basically, I'm digitizing that twenty pound note. That I'm digitizing that twenty pound note such that if I was to pay you twenty pounds, it would have a serial number attached to it, such that. The regulators, the central banks, could then audit the trail of that currency the way they do with cash right now through digital system. But is but isn't isn't that the the, the most important point for central bank digital currencies, which is it's about that ledger, and therefore it really calls into the question the extent to which you need banks to intermediate, right? In in you know because if if you can have your wallet directly with the central bank, if the central bank can disperse money to you directly. You know, it sort of take. Does it to some extent take away that role of banks as as creating money supply and you know? Because I suppose the, to the earlier question about you know if we if we, if we are going to see an increased split between distribution of manufacture of financial services, manufacturing man, financial services, and the central banks kind of rising up to take a bigger share of the manufacturing. Well, I don't want to call it manufacturing, but you know, the balance sheet aspect of financial services because more will just sit directly on their ledger. You know, does that again squeeze the sort of traditional banking sector? Yeah, no, so it might do. It, it, absolutely. And one of the reasons why the central banks are being so cautious in rolling out central bank digital currencies, everybody's looking at China. China is trialing central bank digital currencies right now. They've suggested that those trials will take, will continue up until Beijing Winter Olympics in 2022. So we're not going to see anything launch until at least, at least then. And that's in China. And Similarly, Europe and various other central banks have said that they're, they're still stu- they're still studying it. And one of the things they're studying is exactly that: is that whether they should differentiate between retail central bank digital currency and wholesale. And 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 
one extreme would be retail, which is the picture you paint, which is that you and I have an account with the central bank, the same way that the same way that UBS has an account with the central bank or Barclays has an account with the central bank. We have an account with the central bank and are therefore able to, to conduct ourselves without the need for banks. Yeah. Because um, I can just send you money from my wallet to your wallet, right? Precisely. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it's insured the way bank deposits are currently insured or they do it wholesale. And actually they, they, they maintain the role of banks. And, and, and again, it comes back to this idea of path dependence. It's quite interesting. You know, D, D Hawk talking about him again, when he, things about visa he's got this framework for looking at the world he says you know to understand anything you have to think about the way it was you have to think about the way it is you have to think about the way it might be and you have to think about the way it ought to be and 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 when he was thinking about visa back in the early 70s and let's say today actually he's made this very clear in his book that visa it being created through his kind of organizational principles. It's not, it's not a panacea. It's not a panacea. And it's not, and, and, and he, he lists in his book, and I quote him in my recent piece, some of the issues, some of the drawbacks, some of the flaws in the visa model. And to come back to what we were talking about, the, the point applies here as well, is that there's a path dependence here that, that, you know, it may be on a blank sheet of paper, we can devise this phenomenal new financial system. Yeah. And, and, and they did that in China. You know, in China, they didn't have credit cards. They went straight from cash. So they didn't need credit cards. You get straight from cash to a digital wallet and you cut out the middleman. That's very, very difficult when you've got vested interests that are cultural, political, that, are, that when people are used to a certain way of doing things as they are in Europe and the US, you might be right from a blank sheet of paper. If we could devise a financial system, we'd do it like this. But that's not to use Hock's framing. That may be the way it ought to be, but we can't neglect the way it has been and the way it is. And therefore, it probably won't pan out like that. I was going to ask you this question at the end, but I feel I need to sort of preempt it now, which is you talked about Libra. And I just wonder, you know, if you look ahead at 2021, what's the sort of most potentially game-changing thing that's going to happen in financial services that people aren't talking enough about. It feels like that might be Libra, right? Because, because in a way, they're going to roughshod over all those vested interests and introduce something that's going to potentially have the adoption of every Facebook user, which is, I don't know how many billion people. And, and it's kind of outside a single country jurisdiction. And it just seems massive. Um, I'm wondering, is, you know, are you going to write a newsletter on Libra? Because it just seems such a big phenomenon. Yes, I, I agree. I think it will be a big story of 2021. Riding roughshod, interestingly, they already watered it down. So initially, they put together a consortium which included financial service, financial services companies. They it received there was a backlash from regulators, and so they watered it down. And the result today is something a little bit different. But yeah, no, I agree with you 100. I think that's going to be a big story of 2021. But it's still it's still a currency that might be used to intermediate intermediate peer to peer and and other transactions, you know, and and even all, all the vendors that sell through Facebook, right? Might, you know, within the Facebook network, you might have a currency that sorts compl- sits independently of of any fiat currency, or is, or is that no? So again, I mean, the only thing I would say here is the regulators do still have the capability to insert themselves. So, and we saw that. So in Brazil, WhatsApp which is part of Facebook, launched a payments mechanism. And 
they spent a lot of time preparing it, launched it. Presumably at launch, they'd had the approval of the central bank because they'd spent a lot of time preparing it. But nevertheless, the central bank, once it saw it, changed their minds and, and shut it down. So regulators still do regulators still do have have, have this power, which is I, I guess it's classic disruption. You know, so you know, Bitcoin has been operating at the margin. And, you know, and interestingly, it never really became a payment. Coin, so Coinbase, which is another, is going to IPO this year, and started out as a payments. It started out as a, as a means, as a payments system for Bitcoin. And the, there's a book that was released in December called Kings of Crypto about the story of Coinbase. And in it, they talk about hiring somebody in order to acquire merchants that would accept Bitcoin. And, 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 and he did a great job. He got all these merchants. He got multiple billion-dollar revenue companies, lots of merchants all lined up to accept Bitcoin. But consumers didn't want to spend their Bitcoin. And so they pivoted to a broker, and Bitcoin became less of a payment mechanism and more of an asset class, more of a commodity. So, But but you know, clearly clearly that can change. And, 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 and the... And, but as I say, so so it's tangential, classic classic disruption, and so it operates yeah. margin, and it can become it can become mainstream. Yeah, and I think so. I think the point, yeah, if I understand, is you're saying sort of Libra. First of all, you know, whatever way in which it's envisaged that it would be used might change because of regulator, and it might change because the use case is different from the one that was envisaged. A bit like Bitcoin. I want to move on to a different topic now, which is private versus public investing, because you know to get to get to the sort of you know the at the latter part of your career, I think one of the things um, that you're doing now is you're doing some angel and private investing. I just wonder if if you have any interesting observations about the difference between investing in public markets versus investing in in private companies. And and I suppose we'll come back to it as well. But you know, I think it's relevant because companies seem to be staying private for so much longer than in the past. And you know, it's almost like being expert in private investing is a more important sort of skill set than it was. Historically, we, we could potentially argue. So, I wondered if you've got observations around that. Yeah. So, interestingly, three months ago, I might have agreed with your point about staying companies staying private for longer. I think what we've seen recently through the rise and the emergence of SPACs is that that number. Oh, okay. You preempted that because I was going to ask if the SPAC is the vehicle to sort of you know to 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 get companies from private into public markets faster. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, yes, I think, yes, that, that they are. So, uh, okay, so let's, let's, let's break this down to three yeah. sections, if you don't mind. So, first of all, what, what, why worse? And well, maybe I don't think we've got the data to show it's changed yet, but why worse companies staying private for longer? Because it, it must have been because they, it was difficult to, to realize the value in public markets. So, you know, and, and, and how do SPACs do that? In a, you know, what, why would a SPAC or a company taken to market through a SPAC? have a higher valuation than a company that would have gone through an IPO process. Yeah. So long-term, it's not clear that, the, I mean, long-term, maybe that's just an inefficiency in the, in the short-term, maybe that's an inefficiency in the market. Long-term, it's not clear that the mechanism through which one comes to market has a bearing on one's long-term valuation. But there is, but having said that, the, there are some structural differences in the process. The key one here being that when, um, through the IPO process, management is not allowed through SEC guidelines to provide any projections on the future. So it's, it's caveat emptor, the, the, uh, the investors and 
coming back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of equity research, one of the roles, one of the jobs that equity research analysts used to fulfill was to provide equity research at the time of the IPO. Now, it wasn't always independent, which is one of the issues why it was shut down, but there was a service provided nevertheless. Now, that's not that's not allowed. So now, it, what will happen is the company will provide its own filing and the institutional investor will have to peruse that filing, do their own due diligence, do their own work in order to take a view, but they will have no... They're given no steer as to what the projections are. The spec, as a merger rather than an IPO, it's it's structured. Do you mind, do you mind just because I'm not sure everybody knows what a spec is? I mean, yeah. you, I, I love the phrase that you put in your newsletter. You said the spec is a bit like the wardrobe in the is the portal to Narnia, complete with unicorns on the other side. So, what did you mean by that? I mean, if you don't mind just spending okay, okay, okay. a minute on, on what a spec is, because it's such a new phenomenon. I mean, it's um, there are not many people. Maybe many people that don't know what it is. So. Yeah, sure. That's fine. So SPAC is a special uh, purpose acquisition company. And what, what it is, is it's, it's, it's a pool of money that is raised by a sponsor, typically a well-known sponsor, will we'll raise several hundred million dollars in cash. And the purpose of the cash and the role of the company that the cash sits in is to, is to do an acquisition. With a private company to find a private company, hence the analogy of, of of Narnia. So public investors clearly are restricted to investing only in public companies. But if they were to buy a share in a SPAC, it's just a pool of cash. If they were to kind of hand some cash to the sponsor, the sponsor will then go through the wardrobe into the land of the private companies and find a private company to merge with, bring it back out. And then all of a sudden, you now, through the merger process, have got uh, a share in in a, in, a, in a private in a private company. That is a great analogy, by the way. That's superb to describe what SPAC is. And just to finish off what I was talking about earlier, and the difference is, and it's slightly arcane. It's kind of regulatory, but it but the merger process enables the company to provide projections. So. The guy on our side of the wardrobe, when the sponsor comes back out with his private company, can can say, well, actually, you know, in 2022, 23, 24, these are our projections. What do you think? And at that stage, he can either kind of roll with it or he can sell because maybe it, was, it wasn't what he wanted as a public market investor, so he can sell, but he's kind of got that right. So this, you think this sort of recent last twenty year phenomenon of more companies staying private, maybe addressed through the SPAC because it does two things essentially. If I understand rightly, firstly it reduces a lot of the friction and cost of of going public because I, I can't remember how much an IPO costs, but it's it's a lot, right? You pay in fees. I think it's like four or five percent. Is it you pay to the investment bank? It could, could be even higher, actually. Yeah. So yeah, so so the, so there isn't that big cost. There isn't the sort of you know I don't know how many months it takes to IPO, but it reduces the friction, the cost, the time to go public. Plus, also through being able to share projections with with the market, arguably, and I think this is the bit that you're talking about, which is not as yet there isn't the data, but arguably it enables you to achieve a higher valuation, which is and it was, because I guess there are the two reasons why people stay public for longer. Right, one, they didn't feel they could they could achieve the valuation they were, that they that they deemed appropriate in the public market, or they were just put off by the time and the cost and the friction. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, that's right. And also, the private and the third reason is the private market was rich with capital. So why would they? Um, but that, but that bit hasn't changed, has it? That bit hasn't changed. But you're seeing even in the public. You know, interestingly, recently, so Lemonade 
is a fintech. It's an insurance company that was founded on a kind of a digital platform. And it was a SoftBank. So the SoftBank Vision Fund is one of the biggest venture capital backers out there. It was uh, an investor in Lemonade. It went public in July of 2020. Actually, recently, already in 2021, it's raised it's raised fresh capital in the public markets at a, at a, at a, at a valuation much much higher than when it went public in in the summer. And typically, normally, and that's an unusual occurrence in the public markets. Normally, that would take place in the private markets. There'd be a funding round even six months after the last one. It's more unusual in the public markets. So it feels like there's a kind of convergence between. I mean, maybe maybe it's cyclical just because of where valuations are. But it feels like there's a kind of convergence between some of the behaviors that were typically the case in, in private markets and in public markets. I, I suppose you could argue companies like Tesla um, wouldn't achieve a richer valuation on, on the private market than they could in the, in the public market. But do you think also you know, some of the stuff that couldn't IPO because it didn't come under the same level of scrutiny would, would, would do so through a SPAC? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, some pushback about SPACs is people have talked about us being in a SPAC bubble. And, you know, inevitably there'll be a lot of poor companies that are coming through, coming, coming through that wardrobe that sneaking through that when the, you know, as Buffett says, when the tide goes out. Yeah. 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 We'll see who's swimming naked. I think probably we've run out of time to talk about Robin Hood and that whole phenomenon of kind of, you know, the sort of gamification of stock market investing. But I just wonder if you if you had any other observations just from you know from from your practice as as a public and a private investor. You know, the kinds of things you look for in companies that you didn't historically, or or whether it's you know, very similar. Well, no, it's really, it's, really, it's really very different. I mean, the, the level of the level of I mean, it's very very different investing in private companies from investing in public companies. The, for one, probably four key differences. One is the level of transparency, which is much much higher on on the private side than in the public side. Two is, and this is an interesting point. Two is volatility. So, a lot of people inherently don't like volatility. And I think one of the attractions of private market investing is that they only value, they only get revalued when there's a funding round. And, and so and so kind of right now it's not an issue because in the markets we're only seeing upward volatility with everything getting up. But I think there was a kind of a degree of think back to March, April of 2020 when there was a lot of not such good volatility in the markets. I think there was a Degree of comfort around private holdings, which you know whether it is Robinhood app or whatever broker one is using, one's not seeing kind of the daily volatility of valuations in private holdings that they are in public. That, that that's a difference. It's kind of a, it's behavioural difference. Another difference is, is the, the third is the structure. Very very important as a private investor to be comfortable with the with the structure. Of of the holding, you know, when when you buy a, a share, when you buy a share in Apple, it's it's a share, it's a share in Apple. It's pari passu with all the other shares in Apple. That's not necessarily the case with, with private companies, where there are different classes of share. So it's something that as a as an ex public investor gone private, I certainly had to l- learn about. Uh, and, and the final point, which is, is just that you're in the room. I mean, it's um, yeah. You know, I can I can write I can write a newsletter about 
Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan. He may or may not read it. He may or may not do anything about it. Probably subscribe to it, doesn't he? Well, probably. Yeah. Probably he won't do either, but, you know, to just kind of be involved in, you know, it's a great, it's just a great experience being involved in a private company. Yeah, and I think, I think it's that last point, which is, you know, you have the ability to sort of make your own weather in a way, right? Because I always thought that was, you know, for me, that's the key advantage of sort of angel investing, which is you don't just sort of invest the money and hope for the best. You, you know, you can actually get involved and, and materially affect the return on that investment that you make. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So you're... One, one question I want to ask you, though, which is like the big downside, obviously, of private investing is liquidity. And it just it just sort of amazes me that we we haven't seen more more people enter the space for sort of the secondary market for private investing. Private investing. What do you think that is? There's a, little, there's a bit, and there is a bit. So there are some crowdfunding platforms in the UK, or there's one crowdfunding platform in particular in the UK, or Cedars, which offers secondary trading of its companies that it's crowd equity crowdfunded for but it's probably it's difficult actually because of the fact that coming back to the point about structure different classes yeah. different classes of yeah. shares you know i see you know i did another newsletter on fixed income markets electronic trading and fixed income markets which are which is much less developed than electronic trading in equity markets the reason being is there are multiple fixed income instruments out there whereas there's only one equity for most companies there's only one equity and it's the same here with private there's too yeah, many yeah. different classes of share with too many different terms that are there's no standardization so i've got two quick following questions for you one is what's getting you really excited beyond libra looking into 2021 i think what's happening i think i think you know embedded finance is fascinating i, th- I think what's happening broadly uh, just the acceleration we saw in 2020 around digital i think what's happening broadly through payments mechanisms and going beyond payments, going not payments as the hub. You know, it used to be that the checking account was the anchor product for yeah. most banks or, 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 or potentially the mortgage actually. Increasingly, it's becoming payments. And, and, and that, that I think has all sorts of implications, whether it's around crypto whether, or Libra or embedded finance. It's basically the common theme across all of those things. And then the last question I want to ask you, which I think is going to be difficult, you may have to come back to us, which is, what's the best book that's ever been written about the financial services sector? No, I'll probably have to. Oh, actually, um, ooh, Liar's Poker. Yeah, I would. that would have been my, my pick. Yeah, okay, good. So if anybody hasn't read Liar's Poker, you really, really should. Great. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a great discussion, and I really appreciate you taking the time and, and keep up the good work with the interest, which is awesome. And if you don't subscribe to the interest, you really should. One fantastic deep dive into an aspect of financial services every Friday. So subscribe. Uh, Mark, if, you, if people want to subscribe, where do they find it? Yeah, no. So netinterest.email is a page, netinterest.email. Thanks so much again. Thanks, Ben. No, great to be on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.